Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Alan Cross, and this summer we thought we would do something special with the Ongoing History Podcast and give you, our fantastic audience, a bonus episode every Sunday from now through Labor Day. We're going all the way back to the spring of 2010 and a 15-part deep dive into the history of Alternative Rock. It's the History of Alt-Rock series. So every Sunday, you'll get a brand new episode of this series that examines every single facet of Alt-Rock from the 1950s right up to, well, pretty much today. And don't worry, because we'll have a brand new episode of the Ongoing History Podcast for you every Wednesday as well. So you're getting two podcasts every week now through Labor Day. I hope you enjoy. And thanks for supporting the Ongoing History of New Music. If you were around in the early 1990s, you probably remember it as a time of awesome new music. It seemed that every single day there was a cool new band, a great new sound, a scene that you didn't know about. Grunge was king with Nirvana and Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. Green Day and Offspring had brought punk rock back. Manchester led into Britpop with Oasis and the Stone Roses and Blur. Nine Inch Nails and Ministry, Chili Peppers, Beastie Boys, Tool, Stone Temple Pilots, Smashing Pumpkins, all these bands were grabbing everybody's attention. Hair metal was dead. Classic rock, over. Lollapalooza, the coolest event of the year. The alternative nation had triumphed. No more bad, boring, mainstream pop and rock. Well, hang on. Rock music has always run in a series of cycles that can be traced back to the 1950s. Now, we'll get to that later, but all I need to say right now is what goes up must come down. And the alt-rock party came down hard, and it hurt. This is Chapter 13 of the Complete History of Alt-Rock. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. It's rare that you can identify the exact moment an era ends. In the case of the mighty alt-rock nation of the early 1990s, the end came on a Friday afternoon. It was April the 8th, 1994. There's a greenhouse above the garage, and I, was, I walked around to the door on the upper side to, uh, to see about uh, getting access to run a wire in the house or in the garage. And I looked in through the glass door, and there's this guy laying there with a shotgun laying on his chest and uh, blood running out of his ear. Uh, the King County Medical Examiner's Office has positively identified the body of Kurt Cobain by fingerprints. The autopsy has shown that Kurt Cobain died of a shotgun wound to the head, and at this time the wound appears to be self-inflicted. Seattle Police Department, Homicide, and King County Medical Examiner's uh, are continuing their investigation. It was Kurt Cobain, of course. After many tense months, a botched suicide attempt by overdose in Rome, police calls, interventions, and rehab, he was dead. Many years later, I talked to Courtney Love about what Kurt did. This is very true story, and you told it to me over and over again, that he went to the top of this, this, this hill, and you can ask Charlie Cross about this too, because um, there was somebody with him, this girl Cherie or Destiny or something, when he did this, he went to the top of the hill near the Wishka River, and he stood at the hill, and he uh, opened his arms, and he said, I am going to be the biggest rock star in the world, and then I am going to kill myself. I mean, he said it. You know, there is footage of Kurt that I believe Chris took when they were 15, when he was 15. And it's, it's, it's Kurt, K-U-R-T, Cobain, K-O-B-A-N, 
commits with a K, bloody suicide. And it's got him, you know, Harold and Maude style, every kind of suicide act there is. Instead of saying, we are going to be the biggest band in the world, I had to do a, some sort of negation. Well, Kurt's negation was even bigger. Now that I have the, the Cobain family genealogy, for forensic reasons, I learned also about how, how self-destructive that family is. The death of Kurt Cobain rattled through rock unlike anything since John Lennon's assassination in 1980 and Elvis Presley's death in 1977. An era in rock had come to a sudden, ugly, screeching halt. But at the time, no one really wanted to admit that it was over. Momentum kept carrying everything forward for another 18 months or so. But the specter of the spectacular way Kurt Cobain had excused himself from any further participation in the alt-rock nation hung over everything. But even had Kurt lived, the party was going to wind down on its own anyway. History has forgotten that at the time of Kurt's death, people were getting really tired of that whole drama surrounding him and Courtney, not to mention that Nirvana's In Utero album was a sales disappointment. Pearl Jam were the reigning grunge kings back then, but they were getting tired of that, and they would soon change their career vector away from the mainstream. The Smashing Pumpkins were probably next in line and did extraordinarily well with their melancholy and the Infinite Sadness album for a while, but then drugs and death and disarray hit them, too. There was a revival in punk rock, centered mainly in California, with bands like Green Day and The Offspring selling bazillions of records over a couple of years, but of course that couldn't last either. The Chili Peppers, well, they had guitarist issues and more drug problems. Nine Inch Nails disappeared somewhere. Soundgarden broke up. Pearl Jam launched a fight against Ticketmaster, which kept them from staying on the road as much as they needed to be. Even the Ramones decided to call it a day after 22 years together. Oh, and Lollapalooza, the festival that had been such a galvanizing force, just wasn't the same anymore. The 1995 tour was pretty much business as usual with Sonic Youth and Hole and Back in Pavement, but in 1996, the headliner was Metallica. That just didn't seem right. And by the end of 1997, organizers pulled the plug on the whole idea. As all this was going on, alt-rock was hit with a series of what seemed to be a never-ending series of one-hit wonders, all in some way derivative of the original sounds that we heard in the early 90s. Now, some of these songs were really good, but after one single, we never heard from Harvey Danger or Oleander or Chumbawamba or Kay's Choice ever again. This was really annoying since the CD single was being phased out in North America. So the only way that you could get one of these songs was to spend 15 or $20 on a CD. And many people were getting really tired of getting one good song and 40 minutes of filler. Things weren't much better in the UK. Drugs had infested the Britpop scene, messing up perfectly good bands. The third album from Oasis was considered to be a disappointment. And Blur was distancing themselves from anything Britpop, both in sound and attitude. Meanwhile, the same demographic shift that had ushered in alt-rock in 1991 played a role in 1996. Gen X was growing up and moving on. They were replaced by Gen Y, which was an even larger demographic group. Now, they had largely been unaffected by the recession of the early 90s or the first Gulf War. All they saw around them was the prosperity of the mid-1990s economic boom. They didn't want music made by people who were so miserable that they killed themselves. They wanted... Happy music. Like this. I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. Don't tell me what you want, what you really, really want. I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. Don't tell me what you want, what you really, really want. Don't tell me what you want, what you really, really want. Don't tell me what you want, what
By the end of 1996, Gen Y and most of the rest of the planet was firmly and defiantly into a new era of pop music. Spice Girls, Britney Spears, Puff Daddy, Mariah Carey, R. Kelly, En Vogue. And then came Boy Band Mania, The Backstreet Boys, Sync, Robbie Williams. Even if you weren't into that kind of thing, you might have gone all retro. Clubs all over the world were packing people into retro 80s nights where the DJ played happy, danceable alt-rock from the 1980s with a really big emphasis on the technopop years, Depeche Mode and Soft Cell and Erasure. Meanwhile, high-profile releases from bands like R.E.M. and Pearl Jam failed to sell as well as expected. Instead, like I said, we began to suffer through a series of one-hit wonders and watered-down versions of what grunge used to be. Even U2, which by now was undisputably the biggest band in the world, was confused by what to do next. After a series of gigantic albums, they tried to modernize things with a record called Pop, which was solidly influenced by club culture and electronics. But despite some solid initial reviews, things soon turned sour. Sales for this album were lower than anything since the October album in 1982. While U2 was trying and failing to make technology their friend, and thereby saving rock in the process, it became apparent that alt-rock was going through many of the same spasms it did in 1980 when the synthesizer really began to take hold. Back then, there were many people who would confidently tell you that guitar rock was definitely dead. The future was in electronics. The term that came out of the UK dance clubs was electronica. And when this band entered the American charts at number one with their Fat of the Land album in July of 1997, it looked like the Rock is Dead people might just be right. The Prodigy with Firestarter from their 1997 album The Fat of the Land. Electronica was the buzzword. One hit wonders. Days of the New, Sneaker Pimps, The Sundays, were killing alt-rock. And the old guard, Pearl Jam, U2, Soundgarden, seemed to have either been neutered or broken up entirely. At the same time, hip-hop was gaining strength. There were predictions that it would become the new music of young people. And then there were those who thought that the future might lie in taking hip-hop and merging it into rock. What happened there is next. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The idea of merging rap and rock goes back a lot longer than most people realize. It was 1980 when Blondie, the leading American new wave act of the day, released a single called Rapture. The middle bit sounded like this. Later that same year, The Clash got into the act with their Sandinista album with a song called... The Magnificent! 
As we roll through the 1980s, we began to see more punk funk bands. Gang of Four, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Fishbone, Faith No More. By the time we got to the mid-80s, rap was starting to find mainstream acceptance. But for the most part, it was still an urban thing, and it was still a black thing. People who lived in the city got it and got into it, but out in the suburbs, no one much cared. A few new rock and alternative radio stations tried to play this new music because, after all, it was new, and it certainly was an alternative to the mainstream, but even that audience wasn't much into it, despite their constant harping about how much of an open mind they had about new music. It was one of those weird racial, economic, and geographic divisions that sometimes separates different types of music. Really, what the white kids in the suburbs and in the smaller cities and towns needed was rap with training wheels, something to lead them slowly into this new musical universe. The big break came in 1986. Rick Rubin, the head of a new label called Def Jam, was a big fan of rap, and he especially loved the work of New York's best rappers, Run DMC. But Rubin was also a metalhead from way back, and when he heard Run DMC work with a particular drum beat, he had an idea. Why don't we take Run DMC and put them together with the guys who came up with that drum beat and do a rock rap version of the whole thing? And this is how Run DMC and Aerosmith hooked up for a new version of Walk This Way. After Aerosmith and Run DMC, nothing was the same. Rap and hip-hop was everywhere. And when three white Jewish kids from New York released their debut record, uh, well, you know. You gotta fight for your right to party. The Beastie Boys, with a gigantic hit from their 1986 debut album, License to Ill, the first rap album to ever hit number one on the American album charts. By the end of the 1980s, we were starting to see more rock-rap hybrids. In July of 1989, things finally began to pay off for Faith No More. After nearly a decade of refining their brand of funk-rap metal, they released an album entitled The Real Thing. It started slow, but once the video channels picked up on the video for this song, the video with the exploding piano and the flopping fish, things just went crazy. <laughs> Faith No More, and a few bands like them, proved a lot of people that there was some kind of middle ground between guitar-based rock and full-on rap. They started to think things through. Both forms of music were aggressive and in-your-face. Both forms of music were being into heavy beats, which sounded great on car stereos and in clubs. You could dance and mosh to both. And, not least of all, this music really annoyed parents. Never underestimate the attractiveness of driving mom and dad nuts with what you're playing in your room. Now, one of the cool things about some of the people who were into alternative music was that they didn't carry some of the perceptual baggage that mainstream rock fans had about rap and hip-hop. Chances are that if a person was into Motley Crue and Warrant and Poison and Skid Row and Van Halen full-time, that person probably wouldn't be too interested in what rap and hip-hop had to offer. On the other hand, alternative fans, well, some alternative fans, prided themselves on having an open mind and a willingness to at least try the newest and weirdest music out there. 
as their numbers grew and as alternative music became more and more popular, more and more people were willing to look at this hybrid of rock and hip-hop and go, hey, cool, bring it on. Even straight rap performers like De La Soul and Cypress Hill and N.W.A. and Ice-T found themselves with more and more white fans, white alternative fans. And of course, Ice-T blew everybody's mind with his appearance on the 1991 Lollapalooza Festival. He rapped, but he also rocked with his new band, Body Count. Meanwhile, the Beastie Boys, after confusing people with Paul's Boutique, an album that was quite honestly so far ahead of its time that no one knew what to make of it, rebounded with a series of platinum albums. The Chili Peppers scored big with Blood Sugar Sex Magic, and there was a new band called Rage Against the Machine that seemed to know what they were doing. As the 90s wore on, and as pop music got bigger, this new branch of alt-rock got heavier and harder and darker. It also ended up splitting the alt-rock community in two. More on that in a moment. By 1997, the buzzword amongst fans of heavy, rap-influenced hard rock was new metal. New spelled N-U with an umlaut. And for a while, the biggest alt-rock bands on the planet had some sort of funk or hip-hop influence in their sound. From Bakersfield, California, there was Korn, led by Jonathan Davis, an ex-mortician's assistant. From Detroit, there was Kid Rock, who found a lot of love on MTV with his album Devil Without a Cause, which sold over 7 million copies. Rage Against the Machine continued to, uh, well, rage with their funky blend of rap and metal and hip-hop. And then there was Limp Bizkit, led by a workaholic frontman named Fred Durst. They were absolutely gigantic in the late 1990s with their aggressive take on things. And when they toured, chances were the kids who came to see them would experience rap firsthand from support acts like Method Man or Red Man or even Run DMC. In 1999, songs like this seemed to point towards alt-rock's future. For a while, Limp Bizkit and their kin were behind the most popular sort of alt-rock on the planet. But not everybody was convinced. The music was too heavy, too testosterone-driven, and after a while, it all began to sound the same. And then the whole scene took a big hit at the 30th anniversary Woodstock Festival with its fires and violence that some attribute to crowds whipped up by sets from bands like Limp Bizkit. New Metal had a major polarizing effect. You either loved it or you despised it. And while it was an antidote to all the sweet, sappy teen pop that was out there, you know, Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and Britney, it was just a little too hard and a little too, I don't know, drunken frat boy for many. The only real exception was the Red Hot Chili Peppers, who pulled it back from the brink with their Californication album. Everybody seemed to like that record. But frankly, the pickings for interesting alt-rock at the end of the 20th century were rather thin. And once again, got to go back to all those one-hit wonders. Semi-Sonic, anyone? Fastball? Primitive radio gods? And then there were the ever more derivative sounds that came out of grunge with bands like Creed or a slowly disintegrating Stone Temple Pilots or a dying silver chair. But there was some interesting music being made. While Green Day struggled, Blink-182 established themselves as multi-platinum punks. Beck was turning into a major talent. Kid Rock, despite some obvious sonic kinship with the new metal crowd, had an appeal that was obviously somewhat broader. Meanwhile, over in England, a few bands managed to climb from the wreckage of Britpop and establish themselves as supranational entities. 
One of these bands was from Oxford, and they released a record that many people still consider one of the best, if not the best, alt-rock records of the decade. It was OK Computer from Radiohead. Radiohead wasn't the only British band filling the void left by Oasis and Blur. The Verve had regrouped, and they created a monster album in the form of Urban Hymns, another 1997 record. Fatboy Slim surprised everyone with his take on electronica and turntablism. And somewhere between Oxford and London, a new group called Coldplay was starting to get their act together. But overall, it still was a rough time for alt-rock fans. Pop ruled. Let's make no mistake about it. Pop was king, and there seemed to be a dearth of new stuff beyond new metal. Was alt-rock, or in fact, was all rock really dead? Well, no. It was out there. It had just become harder to find. But that was about to change. And once it did, everything changed. As we waited for the computers to rise up and kill us, thanks to the Y2K bug, the biggest albums in the world were by the Backstreet Boys, Ricky Martin, Britney Spears, the Dixie Chicks, TLC, Christina Aguilera, and Shania Twain. And NSYNC, Destiny's Child, and Nelly would soon have multi-platinum records. What was an alt-rock fan supposed to do? Drown in one-hit wonders? Embrace new metal? Go ahead and buy a Creed album? At any other time in history, yeah, probably. But by the end of 1999, there was another option. It was easy, effective, addictive, and above all, free. An entire universe of music suddenly became available, and you didn't have to even leave your bedroom. At the same time, rock music had become so bad that it had reached the point where enough people were saying, right, that's it. It's up to me to fix it. This is all part of a grand series of cycles, and that's what we'll talk about on Chapter 14 with The Return of the Rock. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.